0: Berkey Guide podcast listeners may uh, have heard of our esteemed producer uh, Sam Evans-Brown in basically every episode. He, he takes the files and he puts them together and we on a ski course with him today in Gunstock, New Hampshire. Uh, he just finished quite respectably in a race. He won an award. Uh, do you wanna talk about that award?
1: That award, that was an illegitimate uh, trap that was, that was played on,
0: upon me. It was best crash. Best, best crash. Cre- best crash, he went into a stream. Um, still finished the race in like, what, 7th place? 6th place? ninth. Pretty good. Nine. I think I would have been 7th or 6th if I hadn't gone into the stream. Alright, and I was 20 something so, so, you know, it's, uh, it all evens out. But what I want to talk about today is that Sam, uh, Sam Evans-Brown, you may have heard of the Outside In podcast that I talk about on the, uh, on the show every week or whenever we produce it, which is every few months. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's been named, what, the best outdoor podcast of the year by Outside Magazine. Um, and after 20-some some episodes, there's finally one about Nordic Skiing. And it's actually about Sam Nordic skiing in, uh, in Argentina, and he's on the side of a bus there. It's a really interesting story why. Um, he actually won a race that is now a world over race. It wasn't then when he won it, but it's it's close enough to, Berkey for, to to the Berkey, which is also a world Upper race that I figured it would be of interest to Berkey Guide skiers, and then maybe you'll download his podcast, and and then he'll love me and keep producing my podcast. Um, so, Sam, do you want to introduce it, and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let you go? Yeah,
1: this is the story of when I was a skiing-obsessed uh, college student and spent my summer chasing the snow down in the southern hemisphere
0: uh, and went to race something called the Marcha Blanca. All right, and um, we'll go right into that. Thanks, Sam, for letting us put this on the air, and we'll have some new Berkey Guide content coming up uh, before the race.
1: Look at all these outdoor pictures. That's all I post. Is it's that. Too much. Yeah. Wow. Well, how can <laughs> Sam? What is this? Yeah. That. That's. That's me. Wow. <laughs> I wouldn't even look with with all the gear on your face. I wouldn't even be able to tell. <laughs> how do you know? <laughs> Are you sure? You, okay. So go to the. What, we do one more. One more. One more picture. There's a close-up. There's up. a
0: picture. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, okay. Wait. Which one is you?
1: Uh. Well, actually, you guys should probably introduce yourselves first.
0: Oh, I am Maureen. I uh, produce this show.
1: I am Taylor. I also produce the show.
0: <laughs> and you are?
1: Yeah, and I'm Sam. I'm the host of Outside In. And okay, and, and to clarify, this, this is a picture of you skiing, and we're looking at a picture, and you're on the side of a bus. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Why are you on a bus? I guess we, I guess we missed the outrage here. We demand explanation, <laughs> Sam. There's this whole story of how I wound up on the side of a city bus in a town in the very southernmost tip of Argentina. <laughs> <laughs> so are you like famous in Argentina? Uh that's probably too strong a word. In a very in one community, people know my face.
0: Okay, so what why are you on the side of this bus?
1: Well, that's the story we're going to talk about today on Outside in the story of how my face wound up on the side of a bus in Argentina. That's not actually the whole story I'm gonna tell you today. Yes, you will learn how I got onto the side of that bus, but really today is the story of the man who is in second place in that photo. He's a racer named Martin Bianchi who made a split-second decision that would change the course of his athletic career and his outlook on life.
2: Bueno. Yo estuve en Torino el año 2006, con 24 años.
1: That's Martín. And what he just said is that when he was 24, he went to the Winter Olympics in Torino, Italy. He's from Ushuaia, which is the southernmost city in the world. It's one of the cities that scientific voyages to Antarctica depart from. Martín grew up at the foot of the Andes and started skiing when he was little.
2: Y mi padre me llevó al poco tiempo a hacer Before long,
3: my dad took me to try cross-country skiing. And I fell in love
1: immediately. He got on skis for the first time when he was nine years old. And by the time he was 14, it was clear he was talented.
3: Argentina's best skier at the time suggested that I should travel to Europe. And he got me a job so that I could sleep and eat and train at the ski center, which was in Spain, the first time that I traveled.
1: For years, he chased the snow. He would spend the Northern Hemisphere's winters in Spain, racing in the mountains of the Pyrenees, and then come home and go to school and have another ski season, racing in Ushuaia. There are not many cross-country skiers in Argentina, and Martin was very quickly national champion and a local hero. He was a shoe in for the Olympics, but in 2002, for Salt Lake City, he had a problem.
3: I had to have surgery on my knee. I had an injury. And I decided that wasn't how I wanted to participate, after having been injured. So I decided not to go. Today, I think that I made a mistake, because I could have been in two Olympics instead of just one. But these are decisions that get made when you're young and haven't had many experiences.
1: So Martin got back on the horse. Another four years of training, four years of working in exchange for room and board, another round of qualification races. And in 2006, at 24, Martin heads to Torino. He had only done well enough to qualify for one race. And
3: out of about 100 competitors, I finished 86th. So I was pretty close to last place.
1: Such is the fate of skiers from countries without any real national teams, coaches, support networks, or competitive race circuits. You spend your whole life training and then wind up 86th. And when he came back, he couldn't quite let go. Back home, Martin was still the best. There was no clear successor. So even though he'd gotten married right before the Olympics and was thinking about having kids, he kept training.
3: There's always something that's calling you back to the trails. At that time, it was that there weren't many athletes behind me. It was like, if I quit, there wouldn't be anybody.
1: He got a job teaching phys-ed to kindergarteners part-time.
3: Well, because in order to train on that level, you have to have a part-time job. It's hard to have a full-time job.
1: I asked him if he could support a family with what he was earning. No, no. So this was the state of things when I met Martin. He was still training like he was going to the Olympics. His life was kind of on hold, but he wasn't going to the Olympics. When I was 22, I was obsessed with cross-country ski racing. I never seriously thought I was going to the Olympics, but I was pretty into it. And at one point, I was ranked pretty well nationally. So in the summer of 2008, I flew to Ushuaia to train. Remember, it's the southern hemisphere, so it was their winter. I found a gig helping out at a restaurant that was next to the ski trails down there. I slept above the kitchen, even though the building had no heat and no electricity once the generator that provided it with power went off for the day. I would wash dishes for a few hours in the afternoon, help with any tourists who had stayed for snowshoe tours in the evening. But the rest of the time, I was just skiing. Hours every day. All that training led up to the big event in Ushuaia. A race called the Marcha Blanca. Historically, back before competitive cross-country skiing was all about lycra and the lightweight, narrow skis that require carefully groomed snow, the race used to cross over the spine of the Andes. Today, it's a pretty standard 13-mile ski race that's also kind of a festival.
2: Maybe the best way to understand our cross-country
3: skiing culture in Tierra del Fuego is to go to the Marcha Blanca.
1: Hundreds of people show up to race and to watch the Marcha Blanca, including many who have hardly ever skied and they come wearing costumes. But there are a few competitive racers in the pack. And that is how I found myself on a starting line with Martin Bianchi. The race immediately separated into a pack of five skiers, and then four, and then after just a few minutes, there were only three of us. Martin Bianchi, Federico Cicero, a skier who would later go on to race in Sochi, and me. Now, the course of the Marcha Blanca is a single 21-kilometer loop. It weaves in and out of the forest, but the majority of it travels over big open plains of frozen peat moss. And all throughout those forests, in frozen bogs, there's a hidden hazard lurking.
3: In those particular years, years we were experiencing a plague. Que es el castor. The beaver. That's right, beavers. El, el se trajo aquí en el año 46. Beavers were brought here in 1946 for fur hats and clothing. And later, when that didn't work out, They had the bright idea of just letting them go. And when they released the 10 pairs of beavers that there were at the time, they bred and populated the entire island. Now they estimate there are over 90,000 beavers.
1: Beavers, in Tierra del Fuego, are an invasive species. How about
2: that?
3: And it has an impact on the ski trails. Often, they simply build up a dam and flood the trail. So we have to do a lot of beaver control. And back then, they weren't doing it.
1: So we're skiing along, traipsing across snow-covered peat moss and beaver bogs. And within the group, things were pretty tight.
3: Well, if I remember right, we were trading off who was leading as we went. And I knew in that moment that I could win. Because we were about on par with each other and I had faith that in the final big climb I could get some distance on you. Me una but I got a big surprise, and I'm being sincere here, Sam, that before that climb, which they call the subida de los hacheros, I couldn't pass you. Eh, no te pude pasar. And so I climbed the hill behind you, without being able to pass you, going maybe a little slower than I would have liked to go, because generally, I'm good at going uphill. When we got to the top of the climb, we had to turn sharply to the right and go downhill. And this downhill ended by going over a beaver bog, much to your
2: surprise. <laughs>
3: the ski tracks, which you normally get into the tracks when you go down a hill, the tracks went over a beaver dam over a part which rose up because of a rock. And the track setting machine had passed over that. So the tracks weren't level and they sort of threw you into a jump. This downhill was very fast. It was short, but very steep. And when we finished the climb and started to go down, we got into the tracks. I looked ahead and saw that the tracks went over a rock and I immediately realized there was a jump there. And there, still ahead of me you hit the rock and went off the jump without meaning to you were knocked off balance and you went off the trail and i passed you i was able to avoid and go around you and it was in that moment that i said well that's it it's over I passed you with all the speed from this downhill slope. So right there, I took 15, 20 meters from you easy. And you still had to make your way back onto the trail and regain your momentum. So I had this fantastic opportunity to go, to keep hammering and leave you behind. But to
2: be honest, but to tell you the truth, something
0: happened in my head
2: that told
3: me this wasn't right. You had climbed the hill well, you had done the downhill well. The only thing is that you hadn't noticed that the trail had a jump in it.
0: A thing that shouldn't have
3: been there. And it was because of that jump that you went off the trail. You lost all your momentum. And to me, the right thing to do seemed to be to wait for you.
1: I didn't fall. But I was standing way off the trail with deep, heavy, powdery snow up to my knees or so. And I remember my heart just sinking into my stomach. We were not far from the finish and I was almost positive that the race was over. But then I looked over and I saw that Martin had slowed down. As he glided past, he looked back over his shoulder and I heard him call out. I flailed my way out of the powder and frantically skied back up the hill trying to catch Martín. Given how slow he was going, it didn't take long before the racing came back together and it was nip and tuck again. The rest of the event was a bit of a blur. Right before the finish, our race merged into the trail being used by the more popular event with people skiing in costumes.
3: We were sprinting, dodging people left and right. You were shouting, I was shouting. It was a mess. When there were just 500 meters left, this I remember. I was pretty tired, and I saw you with this drive, this energy.
0: That's when I realized
3: you were going to beat me.
2: And I did. For me, that was
1: the end of the story. I won a race, they gave me a trophy, I went home, and having won the National Ski Championship of Argentina was an eccentric biographical detail that I could share at parties. But then, years later, an email arrives in my inbox from Martin. It turns out there was something else that happened that day. Something I had completely forgotten.
3: After the race, I came up to him. And you asked me, you came up to me and you asked, Martín, you waited for me when I fell? I said, yeah, sure, Sam. I waited because I wanted us to have a clear winner. And we left it at that.
0: But later, when we are at the award ceremony, you tried
3: to give me the cup, the trophy. I said, no, you keep it. And at that moment, there was someone from the Argentine Olympic Committee at the ceremony. He asked me why you had tried to give me the trophy, and I told him what had happened. I told him the whole story. And for that year, 2008, they decided that the most exemplary gesture of sportsmanship in all of Argentina was this situation that happened in the Marcha Blanca. So they invited me to Buenos Aires for a dinner, a very big deal, a gala banquet, and they gave me a prize in front of all of the Olympic medalists from Argentina.
1: This included the Argentine soccer team who had won the gold medal in Beijing that year. Just imagine, this would be like standing up in front of a room full of people like LeBron James and Kobe Bryant, all the most famous athletes in the country. He met his country's equivalent of Bob Costas, the Olympics host for NBC and had an article written about him in the country's biggest newspaper.
3: This was one of my best memories. So this race is going to stay with me for the rest of my life.
2: And after getting this prize,
3: I think it was kind of like a signal that things were all right, that I could retire, that I had done enough. I had left enough of a mark on the sport.
1: Now, when Martin races, he does it for fun. Today he has three kids, a job in the Ministry of Tourism, which pays much better than a part-time phys ed teacher. He's hung up his commitment to ski racing, but not his love for
2: it. The next year, just to give you an idea,
3: in 2009, I did the Marcha Blanca in a tiger costume. I went from having been on the podium with you, second place, to the next year putting on a tiger costume and skiing the race together with my wife. That was how I ended my racing career. (laughs)
1: And yes, years later, a photo of us together at the front of that race was plastered all over the side of a city bus. In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans Brown, and Logan Shannon, with help from Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, Molly Donahue, and Jimmy Gutierrez. A special thanks this week to Martin Bianchi for taking the trouble to connect with us from the far end of another continent, and to Luis Antonio Perez for helping out with the Spanish translation and being Martin's voice in English. If you head over to our website, OutsideInRadio.org, you can see the infamous photos on the side of the city bus. And if you follow us on Instagram or Twitter at OutsideInRadio, you can see what shenanigans we're getting up to these days. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music today by Blue Dot Sessions, Pottington Bear, and Tyler Gibbons. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.